Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Busy week abroad for the Prime Minister, two continents, three global summits, a lot of air miles. So what does this mean for the UK's foreign and defence policy? And with the Prime Minister away, we saw a return to the spotlight for Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, for an appearance before a parliamentary committee that the government had previously delayed. We'll catch up on what his performance told us about the Partygate row and his own standing. And how do different ministers approach the art of leadership and what does this mean for the civil servants who work with them? A new IFG report has all the answers. To discuss this, I'm joined by two top IFG colleagues, both of whom have clocked up years of service inside government as well. That's Alex Thomas and Jill Rutter. Hi, both of you. Hi, Bronwyn. Hello, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted to be joined as well by Camilla Turner, the Chief Political Correspondent at The Telegraph. Hi, Camilla. Hi, and thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Well, let's dive straight in with the Prime Minister's overseas adventures, a Commonwealth meeting, a G7 get-together and a NATO summit as well. Camilla, you were with the lobby for the Rwanda part of this trip. What was it like? Um, So, yes, I was with the Prime Minister um, from we took off on Wednesday night and had an overnight flight to Rwanda. um, And there was a a big lobby group of us there. um, And we we all set off on the Prime Minister's plane. um, And then we had a few days there before the Prime Minister left on Saturday night to head off to the um, to his next engagement with a a different set of lobby journalists. Um, But it was a really interesting time because obviously being in Rwanda, very far away from the action here. And, and the, the big event of the week was the, the double defeat in the by-election. Um, so when we had the big press conference with Boris Johnson in Kigali in Rwanda, with all these international journalists, the only questions for, for the British journalists were, were about the by-election and, and the troubles he's facing internally within his own party. Um, so I suppose it felt a bit of a, of a disconnect between our location and actually everything that people wanted to hear about, which was what was going on at home. I'm sure he was delighted to have made the back of his plane available to the, uh, the, the British media. What did you learn that you couldn't have learned if you'd stayed at home? Um, I suppose it was really his um, his demeanour, sort of how how he presented himself, how he held himself. And I suppose that kind of seeing him every day over those three days face to face, there was a press conference in the middle, but either side of that, there was what we call a huddle, which is, a, I suppose, a bit like a press conference, but it's off camera and it's much more informal. It's just the prime minister talking to all the print journalists. And um kind of seeing him face to face over that three day period before, after and on the day of the by-election defeat, you can really get a sense of just how he feels about it, how at ease he is, what his... And how did he seem? He seemed, his, I suppose, in one sense, his usual self kind of batting off the, the criticism and wanting to present himself as this big statesman figure on the global stage liaising with other heads of governments in, in different countries, you know, wanting to try and present himself as someone who's in control and and knows what he's doing. Um, But at the same time, kind of impossible to get away from the fact that all his troubles are still there and they're still bubbling away at home. Um, And I suppose a a sort of acknowledgement from him that even though he's trying to be this big statesman, he's ultimately his whole power base is in the UK. And that's what's kind of throwing him off centre at the moment. Really interesting. Alex, we were chatting before this about the Commonwealth and you had an interesting point about whether it was a missed opportunity. Yeah, and I think it was, listening to Camilla there, it was very striking that I think probably rightly uh, she focused uh, pretty much entirely on the domestic political implications because it's quite hard to work out 
a sort of a, a, what of substance the um, Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting actually achieved. There were some kind of worthy uh, education announcements and, and things like that. But it does, you know, it seemed to me uh, uh, observing it, and uh, as you said, Bronwyn, we were talking about it, that it, it was a bit of a missed opportunity, particularly post-COVID and in an organisation that needs to demonstrate its worth and its uh, value uh, over what might be, um, uh, you know, a, a sort of um, volatile period with uh, um, uh, the Queen and uh, Prince Charles and uh, future leadership. Um, it, it, it does sort of need to prove its prove its purpose. And uh, what if not, you know, global vaccine distribution uh, uh, on COVID, um, other sort of big announcements. It was I was very struck, you know, thinking about it before this this podcast, just how hard it was to find out exactly what uh, they agreed uh, and what that actually meant, which uh, I, I fear is, is, is not a lot. I think there's also an interesting point on these summits generally. I, I saw Peter Ricketts, who's a former National Security Advisor and uh, Senior Foreign uh, Policy Civil Servant, saying that unless there's a kind of really strong and effective secretariat, he was talking about the G7, um, uh, teeing up these meetings and then following up and chasing progress on the things that are agreed, they end up being a kind of useful talking shop, but not, not a lot more. And his point that. was that there wasn't that on the G7. On the G7, it does, yeah, it doesn't really exist. So you can ag- agree whatever you want with, um, you know, the prime minister in the room with Macron and uh, and others. But um, but to turn that into something that uh, over time actually means something. I mean, we d- we we did see that with the G20 and Gordon Brown many years ago. Um, so it's it's possible to use these opportunities as uh, sort of uh, global ways of sort of global changes of substance. Um, but I I didn't get that sense from this this run of summits. And David Cameron managed a bit of that with the G- G20 and, and cracking down on um, dirty money, if I can put it that way. Jill, just picking up that point about, um, and you, you, you've seen it from an official's point of view, the, the, pressure, the preparation and then the, the aftermath. What does this amount to and how much difference does it make? Well, it's really quite difficult. I mean, quite a lot of work of uh, officials goes into the preparations. We have these people that we call Sherpas because they prepare summits who do quite a lot of work to try and sort of hammer out communiques that everybody can live with. You try and do quite a lot of work in advance so you don't go in sort of unprepared. You're not taken aback by anything uh, and then you issue something. But one of the problems with these communiques and reading both the sort of Chogham communique and the G7 communique, it's quite noticeable. Chogham being the Commonwealth. Chogham being the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. It's quite noticeable. I mean, some of the differences emphasis between the two, I think, you know, it's a lot mm. more about COVID in the Commonwealth Heads of Government one than there is, which the G7, you know, executive summary barely makes a mention of COVID, sort of put the pandemic behind. It's all about Ukraine and things like that. But, um, but you sort of wonder, you know, question, are they worth it? I think it's really interesting about the reporting and Camilla's just been talking about this. I mean, I've been at, uh, not at, uh, I've been at G7s and things like that. Is that actually, you know, you take a bunch of lobby journalists with you. You know that their prime focus is not going to be on the issues that are normally on the table there. They're much more into, you know, what domestic story is going to play. Can we get some story about disagreements with the cabinet, uh, prime minister's current political fortunes, then there's really quite weighty issues that really are on the table. I mean, that's much more left, I think, to some of the people who are left at home, the foreign correspondents, the commentariat, rather than the people who travel with the prime minister. And quite a lot of this, I fear, degenerates into some of the bilaterals, which are quite useful. 
you know, because these are quite good gatherings uh, of things and a chance to talk about things that with people face to face who you otherwise wouldn't be seeing. And since we left the EU, the Prime Minister clearly has fewer opportunities to speak to his uh, fellow European heads of government. So there's a bit of that that you can do but quite a lot of them to generate into photo opportunities. And I think, for example, the most memorable thing of the G7 are some of those dire leaders together no with no ties <laughs> photographs that we remember uh, against the backdrop of the Alps. So you might think holiday in Bavaria looks quite a nice idea. And they had some quite jolly photographs. And the Prime Minister maybe built his relationship with Emmanuel Macron. But beyond that, I don't remember very much of what happened. I don't know whether Camilla... I want want, want to just ask Jill one more thing on this. They obviously agreed on one thing, which is no ties, but um, Macron and Johnson at the G7, uh, Brexit wasn't really mentioned, but it was hanging there in the background, but but besides all the the talk, wasn't it? I think it sort of hangs as a backdrop, but it was very different, I think, if you look to the Cornish G7. The Cornish G7 last year was to some extent derailed by the European leaders deciding they were coming into Boris Johnson's backyard and they were going to make quite an issue about Brexit and Northern Ireland. I think there was a bit of a sense at this one that it was a sort of slightly unmentionable subject that they didn't want to get distracted into doing that. The EU has very much taken the view that uh, leaders are not uh, certainly not going to be picked off by Boris Johnson on Northern Ireland Protocol. They're not going to let the UK do what David Davis is always recommending, which is go off to capitals and sort it and undercut the commission. They very much regard this as Marashevkovich. Marashevkovich in London at the moment uh, talking about this uh, and you know, they're united behind that. And I think here this was, you know, Chancellor Schultz's summit, his first sort of big outing, doing something, having taken over from Angela Merkel. And it's one of the very striking things about how male the G7 looks without Angela Merkel there, that it was his opportunity. And with the backdrop of Ukraine, the energy crisis, global energy crisis, food crisis coming to actually get into the minority of the Northern Ireland uh, economy and the protocol, I think, would have looked like a bit of a distraction from and much bigger issues. there was a lot of talk after, uh, after the G7 last year at Cornwall that Boris Johnson spent so much time on Northern Ireland mm. and Brexit that had, he didn't wasn't really on top of the Afghan withdrawal, which was at that point imminent. Mm. Camilla, um, looking at the G7 and, and NATO, the more substantial ones, if you if you like, um, what is the kind of um, have, have we seen a lot more? solidarity. We've seen some professions of that, uh, but we've also got a row about defence spending, don't we? Yes, that's right. And I think you're completely right to say that the G7 NATO leg of the Prime Minister's overseas trip is, is definitely the more weighty one in terms of actual news and actual things happening and, and sort of um, announcements and, and agreements and so on. Um so, yes, we've had this kind of domestic row over defence spending, but we've also had a lot of kind of international discussions and, and agreements, I suppose, with the big thing at the moment with um, the, the NATO summit is obviously discussing Ukraine and what more can be done and what, what more kind of consensus can be built among NATO leaders. And we had this um, announcement from the UK government about its massive increase in, in spending for Ukraine. So I suppose the government are, are wanting to use this NATO G7 platform at a time when everyone's interested in what's going on with defence allegiances and um, uh, commitments to, to actually use it as a platform to make some big announcements. And I suppose in the hope that it will bounce other European leaders into also um, committing to, to huge amounts of military spending. Um, but as you say, that's, of course, 
to some degree overshadowed by by a domestic row over defence spending and the head of the army saying one thing and then being slapped down and that's that's all kind of going on in the background. But I suppose the the overall positive is that um, that you know defence is top of the news agenda at the moment and we've got kind of the UK uh, coverage leading on it and um, similarly for other European countries as well. I think of the three, it seems to me that the NATO summit is the one where there's really serious business being done, uh, as opposed to, uh, to others where, you know, the G7 might have stepped up and done something really useful on energy and things like that, but didn't seem to really live up to that billing, partly because I think it's so difficult for Germany to do things on energy. But NATO, we've had the, you know, change in Turkish position on Finland and Sweden joining. Saying, saying that they can yeah, join. And, you know, a sort of, you know, um, sort of rethinking NATO's strategy about the Baltics and things like that, which do seem to be really sort of quite big changes, which are being catalyzed yeah. by the NATO summit, possibly created by created by circumstances. So I think there's also a sort of increasing thought that on the world economy, the G7 really doesn't quite cut it anymore. A lot of the action moved. We saw that from Gordon Brown onwards into the G20 as the new grouping there trouble of course with the G20 is it has sort of Russia and China and relations with Russia and China aren't phenomenal at the moment so very interesting question about whether the G7 we've had this sort of Liz Truss idea of a sort of expanded sort of economic NATO or whatever and I don't know whether that sort of will ever see the light of the day of a sort of expanded (laughs) coalition of the more willing on the economy because the G7 doesn't seem to quite be the right forum for that even anymore. Yeah and if you're going to prioritise NATO is the um one out of the out of the three, I think that um, it would be right to prioritise to be sort of fair to the international community. There. Can you just take us into this row about defence spending? Because on the one hand, as Camilla says, uh, Britain has pledged more for Ukraine, um, and so have some other NATO countries. On the other hand, there's a row about defence spending. Yeah, so the, the sun rises, the Pope practices Catholicism, and um, the Treasury argues with the Ministry of Defence about um, uh, its budgets. Um, uh, so it's a, a sort of perennial theme. But I think there is something quite interesting go- going on here. As, as Camilla said, the uh, Defence Secretary and uh, the um, uh, head of the army, the uh, military side, were making the case for more spending. It seems to me the government's got itself in a bit of a tangle here. There's a manifesto commitment to spend uh, more than uh, half a percent uh, a, above inflation on um, defence spending that the government has uh, abandoned. But so all all the headlines have been about the government not spending enough on defence. But actually, last year and and this year, there's been a huge great slug of uh, additional money to defence. I think the budget went went up by sort of 4% and 6%. um, uh, uh, And that was front loaded over the course of the spending review um, over the next period. So it's it's, it's better for the Ministry of Defence that it's got more money earlier that is then sustained over the course of uh, the next uh, few years. There is more money going into defence. But the big question, so there there are sort of, Arguments about inflation and about roundings and, and uh, obviously abandoning a target that no longer really works because inflation is going to be so high. But that almost masks the really big uh, geopolitical question about uh, whether a peace dividend exists anymore, whether we need to spend far more on uh, defence in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and whether it totally changes the dynamic. to flow from the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Yes, and whether we're, you know, someone at our uh, excellent summer party um, uh, this week, Bronwyn was was describing how you know the the uh, the chart on health spending has been uh, going uh, uh, you know going up for years and years and years, and the 
uh, the chart on defence spending has been going in the opposite direction. There is a there is a hard question for us as a country and as for the NATO alliance to answer over whether that's sustainable. Certainly, if anything is going to uh, uh, shake us into spending uh, a higher proportion of our GDP on defence, it's it's a sort of aggressive Russian action like this. So, Camilla, how much does it matter uh, breaking a, a commitment like that? Well, I suppose it's it's one of these things where the, the, the whole point of making these commitments to the electorate and, and being uh, voted in on, on, on the strength of your manifesto, it, it's one of those kind of bonds between government and the electorate that, that you know, you might have thought at one point was kind of unshakable. But I think the government now have always got this argument where they can say, oh, well, no one could have foreseen the pandemic and no one could have foreseen, you know, billions of, of government spending um, that we spent on locking everyone up for two years. So, so they've always got that fallback, really, which I think we'll probably see increasingly with if more of their manifesto um, commitment commitments are um uh, uh, you know if, if they go back on them they, they've always got that as a kind of core plank of and, uh, and i mean it, it is a reasonable argument that no one could have factored in such a unprecedented event into kind of fiscal planning um but i suppose particularly with the defense spending it does have a particular resonance to it given that we have a war in europe and to have a row over defense spending seems like not not it seems like the thing that everyone would agree on of course we need to be spending on defense we've got a situation where a european ally has been invaded by an you know an old-fashioned ground war um so i suppose even if you have the pandemic argument it's still something that i think people would find a bit odd um to be going back on a on a promise of something that's it's no longer academic it's something that's actually happening and um the amount that we spend on defense is you know could could end up being sort of pivotal for determining the outcome of, of the war and and beyond uh, and the kind of security of Europe is um, many people are saying. Jill, what did you make of Boris Johnson's comments that he's thinking of serving three terms as Prime Minister? Um, extremely unwise. I don't know. Camilla will probably have a better take on this. Uh, I mean, the track record of Prime Ministers sort of forecasting their own longevity or indeed their own demise, is not great. Uh, normally it provokes a reaction, which uh, which these comments clearly did, of, um, well, perhaps it's not for you to determine whether you get a third term. I think it's a bit of a slap in the face to the 148 MPs who'd voted no confidence in him already. Uh, a bit of a come out and get me, I thought, to some of those who might have thought, well, he's on probation. Um, so I thought, you know, Prime Minister clearly trying to demonstrate that uh, although we might all wonder whether he's a sort of slightly wounded duck, that actually he was in fine fettle and you know determined to see it through and had a very big agenda and loads still to do, uh, I think you should never sort of take either your immediate electorate, his own sort of party, or the wider electorate for granted in that sense. So, I think he may live to regret that, but as we may be coming on to, this is a prime minister who doesn't feel bound by normal norms, whether they are constitutional or political. So maybe it won't rebound for him in the same way as it has for other prime ministers who made similar comments in the past. We are coming on to it just a little bit. Alex, uh, Boris Johnson hasn't been in Parliament since those two by-election mm -hmm. defeats, but he's going to return to a liaison committee session. And that 
Privileges Committee inquiry into Partygate. Are these going to cause him problems? Um, potentially. Uh, I mean, it is just to remark, uh, it is extraordinary to have a prime minister out of the country for eight days immediately after those by-election losses. And they, they, they knew it was coming when they scheduled the by-elections. So um, he seems to have sort of just about ridden it out, perhaps. But I think it was it was uh, another courageous decision uh, to, to do that. The, um, the liaison committee I mean, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the civil service sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, you can take the, take, the, take the boy out of the civil service. But uh, um, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the liaison committee, he'll get through that. I mean, there, there might be a, you know, there might be a little bit of, um, uh, sort of political fireworks, but um, he will <clears throat> uh, do, do the usual um, performance. It will be an interesting uh, watch to see what the, what the priorities are and what the committee chooses to go on. Privileges committee, they've now announced the start of the inquiry. Interesting briefing in the Telegraph this morning, uh, suggesting that, uh, Thursday morning, that is, suggesting that um, uh, there was sort of, it's a, it's a kangaroo court or uh, trying to discredit the process before it had even started. So that to me suggests a little bit of nervousness in number 10 about the privileges committee. I don't think that will be super quick. Um, it's likely to play out uh, up to the summer recess with a kind of evidence gathering period. And then we'll, um, we'll re- reconvene again around the party conferences. But that, you know, it would only take one, um, independent minded conservative on the privileges committee to create a moment of, uh, political jeopardy in the commons when you would have a vote on any sanction that the Privileges Committee might um, uh, might might uh, propose, uh, and then it's a simple majority in the House of Commons, which presumably Labour would vote against, and you'd only need um, uh, 30-odd, uh, 38, whatever it is, uh, Conservative MPs to vote in favour of that. So there could be a, a moment of jeopardy there, but we shall see. And Camilla, a moment of jeopardy for uh, Keir Starmer. We're still waiting for the Bar- Durham police to reveal their decision. Yes, that's right. The long awaited Beergate decision. Um, and of course, a lot's riding on this because we've had both Keir Starmer and his deputy Angela Rayner saying they will resign if, um, if you know, if issued with a fixed penalty notice. So this has been kind of bubbling away in the background. We haven't really heard much about it for a while. Um, but I think when that decision does come, it will be, you know, either Keir Starmer's massive day of reckoning where he's, um, you know, forces the Labour Party to elect a new leader potentially. And there's even talk of a snap election off the back of that. Um, Or he's let off and that's really the end of it and and draws a line under it all. And then I think gives him a real licence to kind of reignite his attacks on the Prime Minister, because, of course, he has gone slightly quiet on the party gate front, um, given that it potentially opens him up to accusations of hypocrisy. But as soon as that beer gate matter is closed and if he's let off with, with nothing then I think we'll be hearing him a lot more on the front foot really going after Boris Johnson again, and particularly, as we've heard, with the Privileges Committee hearing Mm. coming up. Mm. A lot of weight to put on the police, uh, though he did choose to do that and put them in that position. Let's turn to our second subject, Um, a version of this, in a way, Simon says, if you like, um, the country's most senior civil servant, that's Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary. Alex, he was up before a select committee this week. Which one? Why? Yes. So the uh, Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, um, uh, catchy title, um, uh, which is the committee that scrutinises the civil service as well as looking at um, the constitution, chaired by William Ragg, who's a Conservative MP, but has been no uh, particular friend of this uh, government and this Prime Minister. 
It was a part of a committee inquiry um, nominally to look at the fallout from the Lex Greensill affair, which was when uh, uh, Lex Greensill was um, employed by uh, the government, the civil service, uh, and uh, various sort of um, uh, controversies about how he behaved in government and how he leveraged his government contacts to, to build a business a that lobby, then collapsed. This is a lobbying yeah. accusation. Um, so uh, Simon Case was there to give evidence about that. There was uh, a bit of discussion about managing conflicts of interest and the civil service had put out some new guidance, perfectly sensible on uh, broadly on managing conflicts of interest. So there was that. But then the the main event really was the committee questioning uh, Simon Case on the fallout from the Partygate uh, affair, and then a little bit at the end for for as this is the IFG podcast on um, uh, civil service reform and uh, the ninety one thousand uh, job cuts that Jacob Rees Mogg had announced, and and so on. So that was the that was the subject matter. And you watched it at the time. You said you found it painful. It, it was not an easy watch, um, uh, and uh, the some of the questioning of the committee, some of the um, uh, slightly painful responses that came from uh, Simon Case. I mean, there were two moments in particular that stood out for me. Uh, one uh, was when uh, actually Simon Case asserted himself. He was he clearly felt. I think this was um, both of these were John McDonnell um, uh, questions. Uh, he felt his integrity was being questioned, and he sort of very firmly, very strongly. It was a moment of passion. The, the one moment of passion, I think, in the in the hearing when he said, "You know, I." I strongly understand my uh, responsibilities under the civil service code. And he sort of asserted that it was, it was an awkward moment in one sense, but I personally would have liked to have seen a bit more of that, a bit more passion, a bit more kind of defense of, uh, of, of the civil service. And then the other moment was when, uh, when he was asked about the sort of civil service response to uh, party gate specifically, and there was a very long pause and then a slightly kind of anguished uh, apology and uh, reflection on what, what might have gone wrong. I mean, personally, I think you know, these occasions are never going to be easy for, for him or any civil servant. But had there been a clearer response from the leadership of the civil service earlier on, apologising for things that went wrong, and then setting out how Simon Case and others were going to lead the civil service out of this with a very clear assertion of the civil service's integrity, how it advises ministers, um, and uh, how uh, disciplinary and other proceedings were going to proceed. That would have given uh, Simon uh, Case and others uh, just a much firmer script, much firmer ground to be on, and given the civil service a bit of uh, direction and leadership um, uh, through what has been a very difficult episode for it, as well as for for ministers and the prime minister. Jill, you were grimacing and nodding mm. when I said painful. Yes, no, I thought it was. I thought it was quite painful. I'm just uh, just a few sort of comments to add to Alex. I thought Simon Case went seriously wrong from the point of view of leadership of the civil service when his response on Partygate was. His first words were echoing the prime minister. And I think a lot of civil servants would be looking for him to say, no, actually, we're taking responsibility. You know, the prime minister may decide that he needs to do these things for his survival. But as the leadership of the civil service, I am going to assert stands. A lot of a lot of civil servants out there feel their reputation has been seriously tarnished. I was speaking yesterday uh, to a you know, relatively you know, junior grade seven treasury civil servant who said, you know, last year she'd say people worked in the civil service and people would say, that's really interesting. Now people say, she says, I work in the civil service. People say, so you're at parties all the time. So I think there's generally low morale. And I think Simon Case absolutely failed to step up on that, as Alex was saying. I thought um, you got the sense that Simon Case was a rather sort of um, embattled uh, person. There was a moment when he referred to the government as a government that 
you know, felt it had a mandate to test the boundaries mm. of the Constitution. <clears throat> yeah. And you didn't get any sense at all that Simon Case saw himself as having any particular role in manning those boundaries and perhaps, you know, turning the Prime Minister back when he was seeking to breach some of the boundaries of acceptability there. So you know, he looked a bit sort of world-weary there. And I thought was really, really noticeable was the one time when he really livened up was when the committee started to um, get into the circumstances which the Prime Minister could call a general election. And Simon offered them an essay on the LaSalle's principles. You could sort of almost see Simon thinking, you know, finally something where I'm on safe ground and I can say things. So I thought it was a, a really difficult, difficult performance for Simon. I think the real issue for Simon... Uh, on this, on issues like the 91,000 cuts, where he seemed to suggest you could do this all through transformation, is did this do anything for Simon's ability to lead the civil service? And I really think that after that performance, uh, he did nothing to suggest that he could actually uh, build back his, I think, rather damaged authority as the head of the civil service. One, one little code on that, just picking up on some of Jill's points on the, the stylistic side. And I should say, you know, I, I know Simon, I worked with Simon when I, when I was a, a civil servant, so declare, declare an interest. There was, there has been some commentary about, <clears throat> you know, his, his sort of style, him looking uh, defeated, the, the, the committee. And it, it, it was, as we said, an, an awkward watch. But I should say it is, you know, that is his, Civil servant style. I wouldn't I personally. I would not read too much into you know the sort of Simon Case, the broken man. It's he has a quite a diffident sort of reflective style in in, in, in these circumstances. So uh, I just uh, I, I think um, uh, I, I think r- reports of reports of Simon Case's demise are potentially uh, a little bit premature. Well, Jill, let me just ask you: Do cabinet secretaries survive changes of prime minister? Uh, yes, uh, they usually do. Um, And actually, one of the characteristics of being a successful cabinet secretary is that you can work with both sides. So we saw Gus O'Donnell, uh, you know, initially appointed, I think, by Tony Blair, then going into Gordon Brown, and then uh, seeing David Cameron, the coalition in until he was taken over by Jeremy Hayward. Jeremy Hayward, I was only cabinet secretary, no longer with us, unfortunately, uh, only cabinet secretary under the coalition and the conservatives, but had cut his teeth as principal private secretary to Tony Blair and brought back to run number 10 for Gordon Brown. So I think the real characteristic of very successful civil servants is that they can do that. Mark Sedwell clearly didn't do so well on the transition, having been brought in as national security advisor by Theresa May and then moved on. A bit more difficult, I think, possibly for Robin Butler, moved on quite quickly after Tony Blair came in. I think not a natural meeting of styles between Robin Butler and Tony Blair, uh, to put it mildly, uh, and replaced by Richard Wilson. I think Tony Blair never quite got what the point was of these cabinet secretaries anywhere. I'm not sure Tony Blair (laughs) quite got the point of the civil service generally. Uh, So yes, you normally would. Uh, but I do think there would be a question mark over Simon Case's future, since he does seem to have hitched himself quite closely to this very particular prime minister, that if there were a new prime minister, would they think Simon Case is the best appointee? He emerged rather as a dark horse uh in the race to be cabinet secretary last time. So you might very well find that, particularly if there was a big change of government, that they might 
you know, decide that after a decent interval, they wanted to move on and appoint somebody else. Or not a decent interval, as it may be. Let's leave that one there and turn to our third question of why or how do ministers lead in very different ways, lead their department, that is. A new IFG guest paper by the University of Southampton, who's been looking at our our Ministers Reflect archive. That's where ministers generally, when they leave office, but they they give us their thoughts on what they didn't know, what they learned, uh, what they would do differently, what they think should be organised differently. And it's a unique archive. And uh, some University of Southampton academics have been trawling through it. And they have found that there are two types of approach, a transactional style where the minister sees the civil service as a challenge to be handled, a policy making resource to be optimised or a political risk to be contained, or a transformational style where the minister sets out a vision for the department and works with the civil service by, in theory, building mutual trust, respect, understanding, all those great things. Jill, what do you make of it? Well, I thought it was very interesting. I thought, first of all, it showed the value of the Minister's Reflect archive as this sort of thing to be mined for people to look at. And I thought what was interesting about the University of Southampton academics approach was, you know, they did some sort of linguistic analysis of textual analysis of the answers. And then they applied a model that's used in the private sector about business leadership and said, you know, does do we think this, this stacks up in civil service leadership? So I think they came up with quite an interesting hypothesis. I'm not sure sort of I totally bought the hypothesis that they ended up with about the difference between transactional and transformational. I'll give you one example. One of the people they put in their transactional box is Michael Heseltine. But if you talk, I never worked for Michael Heseltine, but if you talk to civil servants, they loved working for Michael Heseltine because they loved the fact that they had a minister who brought clarity about what he wanted, did that. Now, they put that in this rather sort of desiccated transactional box, but a lot of civil servants thought he was a really inspiring minister to work for because he brought that sort of clarity and purpose and things like that. So, you know, and they, I think, would say that was quite a transformational experience. So I'm not sure that it's quite as cut and dry, but I thought, you know, it's a really interesting approach. And I think one of the things that is very interesting is their conclusion, which is, uh, which is, I think, definitely right, which is the civil service does need to think that just because this minister has treated the job this way doesn't mean your next minister will treat the job another way and i know i know from personal experience that the treasury in 1997 was incredibly badly caught out by just extrapolating from sort of big beast chancellors they'd had whether nigel lawson jeffrey howell ken clark to thinking that gordon brown would lead the treasury in exactly the same way and it took them quite a long time and perhaps not perhaps the most emotionally intelligent outfit we've ever seen to cotton on to the fact that Gordon Brown might externally look like a sort of very confident big beast who would love the Treasury's approach to doing things, but actually had a totally different approach. So I think that warning of actually ministers will come with different styles is really interesting. I do think there's a really interesting, though, other question, which perhaps goes to a more IFG Quickly, question. I want, to, I want to hear what Alex yeah. says. And I, right. I, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm transfixed by this idea of yeah. Gordon Brown as an unconfident big beast. Uh, but no, but my, my, but my <laughs> other question is, is there some sort of sort of base approach that 
you know, ministers, you know, rather than just sort of, you know, come in with their own very idiosyncratic approaches that the Institute for Government should be saying to ministers actually works well. One of the things that of the transactional approach is setting priorities. And I think, you know, mm. we brought all ministers, wouldn't we, to be pretty clear to their departments about their priorities. But Alex... Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what Jill said there. I, I did. I really enjoyed reading it. It was an interesting uh, report. I, um, uh, like Jill, I, I, I wondered a little bit about some of the uh, sort of boxes that you'd you'd put ministers in. But it is and actually no one's going to want to be put in the transactional exactly, box. Exactly. Yeah. Told that they've not got a start. They've not got vision. <laughs> you are the desiccated, you know, manager <laughs> yeah, minister. Yeah. But it is definitely true. And this is that you know there are transformational ministers. Jill mentioned Hesseltine. The, the classic example in the current government would be Michael Gove, who, um, uh, you know delivers when he's around long enough to do it, but certainly brings an energy and a transformational style to a department. There are other ministers I've worked for who are much more, I'm not sure transactional is the word I'd use, but managerial. They happen to be interested in what's under the bonnet. They they want to get the spreadsheets out and the charts and all this, which can be quite difficult for the civil service because civil service think that's our job. You know, you, you set the priorities in the agenda and we'll um we'll we'll do the um the management. So so those ministers definitely uh, definitely exist. I think the, the the other things that, and I completely agree on the civil service needed to adapt its style to to do that. And, and I also think there is you know there is good advice that a good civil servant and a good think tank like the IFG can give to ministers about how you succeed and get the most out of the civil service. I think there's a slightly more complicated picture though, which is um, uh, that ministers behave differently in different parts of their portfolio differently over time. I've certainly worked with a minister who might be transformational in one area because they're passionate about it. But for example, then when I worked with them on the constitution, uh, they just saw risk, you know, they saw complication and risk and difficulty. And, and so you're transactional in that mode because you don't really want to achieve something transformational. You just don't want anything to go catastrophically wrong. The other, the other reflection I'd, I'd observe and the, agree with everything Jill said on ministers reflect, but it is ministers in their own words. This is the story they want us to hear. This is the, the story they're telling themselves and, and others. So, uh, uh, I'd, I'd certainly say there's, there's just something interesting there about how others might perceive ministers and how they might perceive themselves. That very, very gracefully put, <laughs> Alex. Alex. <laughs> I think we all can see Reach that. your own conclusions on that. No, absolutely. <laughs> Camilla, um, you're listening to this. One of the things the report says uh, is that female ministers are on balance more likely to take on a, a transformational approach. Um, I'm not asking you to sort of get into the weeds of this this particular report, but do you find that female ministers manage things differently that they go about the whole job of being a minister differently is that is that your, your um or is it well, too, much of, too much of a categorization well I, I suppose it's one thing if you're working in government and you're civil servants and you're working under a minister i suppose that's a very different uh outlook to what i have as a journalist just reporting on what ministers are kind of doing and saying publicly which of course might be quite different to the way they run their office or, or the way they're speaking to their um their officials um i suppose you know there are these kind of classic stereotypes about women um which i suppose extends to, to ministers wanting to sort of be very diligent and read everything and know what they're talking about and be very sort of well prepared for things versus uh men who might sort of like you know uh, scan over some bullet points and then just kind of ad lib their way through something. Um, and I suppose in terms of ministers and the way they run their departments, that's obviously something that um, in terms of officials would 
kind of have a very different um, set a very different tone um, for the department. Um, but I thought more generally on this report, it just seems very timely to be looking at the civil service and these different ways of of running things and different outlook of ministers. Because of course we're at a time where the government are really shining a light on on civil service, talking about massive cuts to um, employees, they also are. looking at they entire are. quangos. Talk, talk of cutting <clears throat> whole quangos. We had Suella Braverman just last night um, talking at a panel event, and, and she was discussing. Um, how we've had this proliferation of quangos in the last 30 years and really hinting that it's something she wants to try and um, put a lid on. Um, And then, of course, not so long ago, we had Dominic Cummings talking about massive civil service reform and and this idea that... um, in order to get ahead in your career, you're essentially promoted out of your expertise, um, which whatever you might think about Dominic Cummins, I actually thought that was quite a sensible observation. Um, so, so I think we're really at a time where the whole um, structure of the civil service is being looked at um, and potentially looking at quite significant reforms. That's really, really interesting. Alex, maybe you could just wrap this up for us. Civil servants have to do their job. I'm not going to say in exactly the same way, and obviously there's huge varieties of them, but they, they know they know what is expected of them. Ministers can come in and do things in completely different ways, and as this report says, a lot influenced by their previous occupation, whatever that might be, if that isn't just a political consultant. <laughs> this must present enormous problems for civil servants and really not knowing what style of manage of, of leader they're going to get. So it, it does, and there's definitely, I mean, it's a bit of what Joe was saying about the Treasury in 1997, but... There is definitely a, a moment of sort of heightened anxiety when a new minister comes in, when particularly the most senior civil servants think, my goodness, what does this person like? Uh, I need to establish my credibility with them very quickly. Um, uh, you know, one minister might love PowerPoint and the other might love uh, Word documents, uh, you know, to, to that level of kind of triviality. But that's that's the stuff that ministers see. So there's a there's a, there's an there's an importance for the civil service of establishing credibility. So but but often that's kind of that's almost quite superficial um so the 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 work that goes on is 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 broadly the same but the way it's packaged and and presented i think can present challenges for civil servants but i would also i'd reflect on the other side of the coin which is it's you know, it's good that ministers have different styles. You, you need the right people in the right jobs, and that's the responsibility ultimately of the prime minister. But that who brings has his a, own style. Who has his own style? But that brings a, a uh, which we much commented on. But that that brings a kind of creativity to a department and an energy and uh, a minister testing the civil service to think about things a bit differently, to be the kind of grit in the oyster. Um, uh, is you know is a uh, you know, is a is a valuable thing for government, and it's important. I think if you just had a kind of bureaucratic perma states doing things the same way, uh, not set aside the democratic arguments, but you'd lose a creativity and a and a spark there that ministers bring. Yeah, maybe we are defending the bureaucratic perma state. <laughs> I just I was just going to say that one of the things we do see is a real spike in downloads. Ministers reflect interviews when anyone is reappointed <laughs> as the civil servants in that new department. <laughs> all try and get a handle on what the new person is going to be like from what they said in Ministers Reflect. Well, on that note, we're going to have to wrap up another episode of Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Alex Thomas, Jill Rutter and Camilla Turner. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, all major platforms. Please do leave us a review. That's the one transaction we ask for in what we hope is a... uh, transformational relationship with these visionary podcasts (laughs) don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for that paper on ministers and all our reports and comments and videos and podcasts and the rest of it that's it for now the prime minister's overseas travels are coming to an end his domestic troubles and challenges however probably aren't see you next week bye